0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast
2: will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch
1: now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch TechCrunchDailyCrunch.com In the year 2000, measles was declared eradicated in the United States. But now the highly infectious disease is back, making some children miserably ill, both here and around the world. We know how to prevent this disease, yet there are parents who say that the best way to protect their children is not to vaccinate. Now some doctors say that it may take a deadly resurgence in infectious disease to make clear that vaccines save lives. But saying yes to a shot in the arm, that means understanding relative risk. And it turns out that we're not very good at that. It's our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check, the me in measles from Big Picture Science. You could frame the current problem with vaccinations this way. Science has worked too well. By the middle of the 19th century, scientists had proven that germs, not bad air, made us sick. In the 20th century, scientists were in full offensive swing, using their knowledge about how bacteria and viruses worked to develop antibiotics and vaccines and stopping some scary diseases in their tracks. Polio, smallpox, even measles vanished from public view. Children could reasonably expect to grow into adulthood. We came to forget what some of these horrible afflictions looked like. Well, we're now being reminded. I'm Seth Shostak.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists investigate the nature and origin of life. Big Picture Science steps back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and we devote one episode a month to critical thinking. Skeptic Check. In this show, the latest battle in the war on vaccines, and why it's different this time as parents push other parents to inoculate their kids. Also, what resisting a shot in the arm says about how well any of us are equipped to evaluate risk. It's skeptic check, the me in measles.
1: During the summer of 1950 in Withville, Virginia, children were finding relief from the sweltering temperatures by jumping into the public swimming pool. But then they began to complain of headaches, dizziness, and weakness in their legs, and more than 180 children contracted polio that summer. It would kill some and leave others paralyzed.
0: This is polio, and it is something for you to remember. Polio is not
2: over. Polio is not over for this patient. Polio is not over for
3: thousands.
1: Withville had the highest number of polio cases per capita that year, a tragic distinction for the little town, but emblematic of how the virus was moving with devastating speed throughout the country. And then Jonas Salk developed a vaccine.
3: In December 2014, Disneyland in California was a microcosm of the 1950s public pool. More than 40 measles cases were linked to an exposure in the park, although the source is still not known. And then the disease made its way across the country.
1: Now, measles is not polio, although with residents in some isolated areas now resisting the polio vaccine, some ask whether that disease could return as well. But measles is a highly infectious disease to which children are especially susceptible. Worldwide, it's one of the leading causes of death among children, especially those under the age of five.
3: Humans have long been under siege by measles. In 1529, the Spanish introduced it to Cuba, where it killed two out of three natives.
1: Now, while 16th-century Cubans didn't have the option to be inoculated against the disease, we do. By 2000, vaccination efforts were working so well in the U.S., federal officials declared measles eliminated, meaning that there hadn't been a new case in 12 months. Now the U.S. is
3: seeing the biggest measles outbreak in nearly two decades. It's a chilling sense of déjà vu for Paul Offit. The pediatrician and infectious disease expert lived through the 1991 outbreak of measles in Philadelphia where 1,400 people were infected. His team saw more than 200 children covered in rashes and struggling to breathe in the emergency room at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia.
1: In a recent op-ed article for the New York Times, Dr. Offit described this experience as akin to being in a war zone. Nine children died during the Philadelphia measles outbreak. Their parents had opted not to vaccinate.
3: We reminded Dr. Offit that when we spoke to him five years ago, during the height of the fear that the measles, mumps, and rubella, R vaccine, caused autism, he predicted then that some parents wouldn't budge on their opposition to vaccines until infectious childhood diseases returned, and perhaps not even until some children died, because, he said, we seem to have forgotten that vaccines save lives. Paul, when we talked to you a few years ago
1: about a segment of the public that was resistant to getting the mmr that's measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, you said that resistance to vaccination would grow until these diseases came back and children began to get sick and maybe even die. Well, measles is back. So to what degree is what you predicted really coming to pass?
2: Well, it wasn't a hard prediction to make. It certainly is coming to pass. Last year, we had almost 650 cases of measles. That was the biggest outbreak we've had of measles in almost 20 years. This year, we're on a pace to double that. And, you know, get to a few thousand cases and you'll start to see measles deaths in this country, which is unconscionable. Well, we have had at least
1: one child die from measles in Germany. So are parents uh, aware of that? Are they rushing to vaccinate their children?
2: Yes. Actually, I think it's a tipping point. Um, For the first time, at least since I've been trying to educate the public about vaccines, which has been for 15 years, I see parents who are really angry at those parents who are choosing not to vaccinate their children, putting not only those children at risk, but those with whom they come in contact. There's a real anger out there that didn't exist before. And how are they making that anger manifest? I mean, what are they doing? Are they just writing to the local newspapers? Are they just rioting in the streets? What are they doing? yeah, you, know, you you see their comments in in you know newspapers, magazines, on television, you, you it's palpable. It's different. Is measles the only disease making this kind of comeback? No, we've seen an increase also in pertussis or whooping cough. We've also seen an increase in mumps, And that's exactly what you would expect to see. When so-called herd immunity starts to erode, meaning when enough people in the population stop getting vaccines, it's the most contagious diseases that come back first, and that's exactly what you're seeing. Measles, mumps, whooping cough are quite contagious. Maybe you should explain what herd immunity is. It sounds like, you
1: know, something that would apply to, I don't know, cows or something like that.
2: Right. Well, herd immunity just means uh, you vaccinate enough people in a population so that it's frankly not possible for a virus or bacteria to spread, which is critical because remember, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who can't be vaccinated. They can't be vaccinated because they're getting chemotherapy for their cancer, they're getting immune suppressive therapy for their chronic diseases, or in some cases, because they're too young. They depend on those around them to protect them. Otherwise, they're frankly the most vulnerable.
1: So if enough people opt in for the vaccines, then nobody gets them. And if not enough people, then a lot of people will get it.
2: And that's exactly what's happening. You know, you, and it's interesting. This year's outbreak is different than last year's. Last year, the, the, probably the biggest epicenter of the outbreak was in Medina County, Ohio. So it's an Amish community. There were about 380 cases of measles. And nobody seemed to care. I mean, it's certainly the media didn't pay it much attention. I think people saw that as an insular group, an other group, not us, so not a problem. This year was Disneyland. And Disneyland is seen as a shared space, a commons. And plus, it's the happiest place on earth, right? And how somehow this we've soiled this Garden of Eden with, uh, with measles. It's almost biblical.
1: <laughs> what percentage of the population, what percentage of the herd needs to get vaccinated before it's safe?
2: And again, that depends on the contagiousness of, of the virus or bacteria. In the case of measles, you really need about 92 to 94% of the population to be vaccinated. But again, if you look from sort of 30,000 feet, we are pretty good in this country about vaccinating. The problem is when you look closer, especially in Southern California, there were elementary schools where, you know, only 50% of the children were vaccinated. And generally, it was in places like Marina del Rey, Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, these sort of upper middle class to upper class suburbs of Los Angeles where parents made that choice.
1: Uh, Now, the measles vaccine and frankly, any other vaccine, they don't seem to be mandatory per se. But there are schools that won't let children into the classroom that have not been vaccinated. Is this the right approach? Is it even a legal approach?
2: Well, there are pop off valves. I mean, every state in the United States has so-called medical exemptions, meaning if you have a medical contraindication to getting a vaccine, then you don't have to get one. But about 19 states have something called philosophical exemptions. 47 states have religious exemptions. So there are ways to get out of getting vaccinated. And that's basically what's happening. Well,
1: what's your take on that? I mean, why aren't parents vaccinating, at least the majority of them? The link that English researcher Andrew Wakefield made years ago uh, to have found, you know, a link between autism and the MM MMR vaccine has been thoroughly discredited. The paper was retracted. Wakefield was found guilty of massive fraud. He's now barred from
2: practicing medicine in the U.K., I believe. So why is this fear still out there? Well, I think a couple of reasons. One, I think it's uh, once you've scared people, it's very hard to unscare them. But I think at the heart of this, people aren't scared of the disease. They, they haven't seen measles. Frankly, most doctors in our hospital probably have never seen measles. My children are 22 and 20. They've never seen measles. And so you think it's no big deal. But, you know, before there was a measles vaccine in 1963, every year, three to four million people would get measles, mostly children. 48,000 would be hospitalized and 500 would die. I mean, I live in the city of Philadelphia and was living in the city of Philadelphia in 1991 when we had a massive measles epidemic. There were 1,400 cases and nine deaths in our city. Five of those deaths occurred in 10 days. And this city was in a panic. So I think anybody who's actually seen measles or experienced measles would take it seriously.
1: There is a group, at least here in California, of affluent, educated parents who do not want to give their children the vaccine because they want to raise their children in a natural environment. Organic food, no chemicals, no vaccines in their body. These are parents that are thinking about the choices they make for their children. So don't they have a right to raise them any way they want?
2: Well, I mean, I'm not sure why the word natural has such good press. I mean, there's nothing good about a natural infection. Um, Mother nature can kill you. And, And the notion that you can live in an environment where you're just, you know, boosting your immune system and using all organic foods, et cetera, doesn't in any sense give you specific immunity. There's only two ways to get specific immunity. That's to be naturally infected or immunized. And believe me, you don't want to have to pay the price that comes with natural infection. Well, is a vaccine unnatural
1: in any sense? I mean, what, what are they saying about vaccines? Why aren't those natural? I mean, it's just biology.
2: I think vaccines are natural. I mean, they're made from products in nature. It's just that typically what happens, let's suppose you're, you're lucky and you have a measles infection that's very mild and you develop lifelong immunity. Vaccines do that, that basically they're even less than a mild infection that very rarely do you get fever, very rarely do you get a rash, and yet you develop lifelong immunity. We eliminated measles in this country by the year 2000 using a vaccine only to prevent a disease that caused three to four million people, mostly children, to suffer every year. That's remarkable. That's That tells you how effective that vaccine is. And frankly, measles and measles vaccine are the canary in the coal mine because once herd immunity starts to erode, there's no better indicator of the strength of a national immunization program than measles because you have a highly contagious disease and a highly effective vaccine. It's been a long time since I had measles, a very long time actually, but maybe you can tell us
1: since many people haven't seen measles. You just said that. How does it present itself? What does the disease look like and and how sick can it get you?
2: Well, it starts with a rash, usually that begins at the hairline. It then spreads down to the face, the trunk, and the the arms and legs. About 50% of people who have measles will have abnormal chest X-rays. About 1 in 20 will have clinical pneumonia that can be severe. About 1 in 1,000 will have encephalitis when the virus infects your brain. And very rarely, the disease causes something called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which is a gradual dementia that results in death usually 7 to 10 years after you have measles. It's a terrible disease. And, and frankly, when, when kids come into our hospital with fever and a rash and they call old people like me down to see whether or not we think it's measles, the best way you can tell whether it's measles is how miserable the child is. Children with measles are miserable. Perhaps you could tell me how we could compare
1: the risk of dying from measles or maybe suffering some of these pretty awful sounding complications to the risk of an adverse side effect to a vaccine, because after all, vaccines all do have side effects in some proportion of the population.
2: Well, I would argue vaccines are the safest, most effective things we put into our body. If you look at side effects, certainly vaccines can cause pain or redness or tenderness at the site of injection. Um, The human papillomavirus or HPV vaccine has been shown to be associated with fainting, although, interestingly, you don't even have to give the vaccine, just unsheathing the needle seems to do the trick. Um, and certainly, vaccines can cause allergic reactions, including severe allergic reactions, because of stabilizing agents that can be in the vaccine. But it's very rare to have that happen. And and children don't die from that. That's why you're asked to stay in the, uh, in the doctor's office for 15 minutes after getting a vaccine. So should you have an allergic reaction, which is immediate, you would know that. I mean, what are the serious side effects of vaccines? Uh, you know, vaccines are remarkably safe. Vaccines are safer than vitamins. I mean, vitamins, vitamin A, vitamin E, beta carotene, which is an A precursor, have all been shown when taken in sort of the mega dose amounts, which is commonly available at your GNC center, you know, have been shown to be associated with cancer. That's
1: not true of vaccines. What about the chance that uh, the enemy we're fighting here might uh, be changing its uh, behavior, because in Canada, there's a new strain of the measles virus, apparently, and uh, you know, viruses mutate. How do they do this? What, what's the fresh challenge that that would present to us?
2: Well, the measles virus has never mutated away from the vaccine, although it is a mutable virus, a so-called single-stranded RNA virus. The fact of the matter is, is that the same strain that was causing, essentially the same serotype, if you will, of measles that was causing disease and killing people in the 1700s is still the same strain that's causing disease today. If you get a measles vaccine, get your two doses, the odds are very high, 99% effective, you're not going to get measles. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, the viruses that vaccines prevent have not mutated away from the vaccine in any case. A
1: bit of uh, the history of vaccines, Paul. When Edward Jenner used cowpox to protect against smallpox, smallpox was nearly eliminated, right? I mean, how did that change life for uh,
2: 18th century Europe or, or at least England? I think there's probably no better example of the power of vaccines than the smallpox vaccine. I mean, it's estimated that smallpox has probably killed more people than all other infectious diseases combined. It killed, in essence, about 300 million people. I mean, it it killed European monarchs. It changed European history and American history, for that matter. That vaccine eliminated disease. It's an example of that we were able to create something that eliminated a disease from the face of the earth. Remarkable. One interesting thing about the
1: smallpox vaccine was that once the disease was nearly eliminated, stories began circulating that vaccines might be harmful. What happened here?
2: I think you could argue the birth of the anti-vaccine movement was associated with the birth of the first vaccine. I mean, Edward Jenner figured out that if you took a virus that we now know to be cowpox, um, he didn't know that then, but that it's antigenically similar enough to human smallpox, such that immunization with cowpox can actually prevent human smallpox. That's remarkable, but it scared people because people knew that the source of that agent, what we now know to be a virus, was cows. And so there's a picture in 1804 by James Gilray where you see Edward Jenner, this this disinterested Edward Jenner, holding a a giant-sized syringe. And everybody around him is looking fearful in large part because they're turning into cows. They're developing these sort of snouts and floppy ears and tails. And I would argue that, frankly, the biological basis of some of the fears that we have today, such as vaccines cause autism, make about as much biological sense as getting a cowpox vaccine would turn you into a cow. But people didn't stop getting the vaccine. Well, there, there was an anti-vaccination league that was born in the early 1800s and was as virulent, frankly, if not more virulent than, than a lot of what we hear today. And there were a number of people who chose not to get a vaccine because they were more frightened of the vaccine than they were of the disease, which is remarkable when you think of how deadly smallpox was. Do you think that we're seeing a, a repeat of this scenario today or is it going to come out differently today? I think it's going to come out differently. I really do think we're, we're learning from this lesson. I think people are a little fed up of the fact that you now have more than 140 people in 17 states in the United States that have to suffer a disease that's completely preventable. Also, I think people realize that when you choose not to get the vaccine, you're affecting others. I mean, it's coming down to this, this basic question of the individual's right versus societal good. I mean, is it really your right to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection? I, I think the answer to that question is going to be no. Paul Offit, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you.
3: Paul Offit is an infectious disease specialist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia.
1: You know, some things simply haven't changed. These rumors that were circulating in the 19th century that because he got cowpox vaccine, you turn into a cow. You'd think that that was just a matter of communication. But we have much better communication today, and those kinds of rumors still circulate.
3: And the other thing is, is that people rely on anecdotes and also personal experience, such as, I had the measles, I was fine, so what's the problem? But as Dr. Offit has said in previous interviews, um, that is the assessment of a survivor, someone who survived the measles.
1: Well-known confirmation bias. Hey, I drove down the highway this morning at 110 miles an hour, and I'm here. There's nothing dangerous about speeding. And how many
3: tickets did you get? (laughs) Well,
1: (laughs) Only two to the opera.
3: Well, one part of scientific reasoning is evaluating risk. We stare down risk every day. Driven a car lately? Seth has. Climbed up a ladder? How about stepped out of a bathtub? Well, we take chances all the time, and usually without thinking twice.
1: Coming up, that paragon of rational thought, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who makes the case that we're all a little irrational when it comes to evaluating risk. And he shares
3: his own parenting tips. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science Skeptic Check The Me in Measles.
1: Where are you now? Driving in a car? Ambling down a street? Lounging at home? Well, take a look around. You probably think you're pretty safe. But are you? Well, if you're driving a car, you're not, very, statistically speaking. Barreling down the highway at 70 miles an hour in a box made of stamped steel that will fold like origami upon impact, along with other boxes, some traveling even faster, well, it's one of the deadliest things we do.
3: Okay, but maybe you're at home on the coach, and as long as you stay there, you're fine.
1: Well, actually, not so much. Being sedentary for prolonged periods, it's unhealthy.
3: Okay, but if you decide to move about, you greatly increase your risk of injury. A quarter of all fatal accidents occur in the home. That luxurious hot shower? Well, you're actually treading on slippery, dangerous terrain. And the chance that you could die from falling out of bed? One in 20,000. But what are we going to do? Sleep standing up? I mean, not
1: getting good enough sleep carries an even greater health risk. So you see where this is going. There's risk in a lot of things we do. Our job, as thinking Homo sapiens, is to evaluate those risks and decide which ones are worth taking. And guess
3: what? One of the most reliable tools for doing that is science. And so when it came to getting their child vaccinated, it was to science that the parents of future astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson turned.
0: My parents always took the advice offered by leading research and medical doctors, so we were all vaccinated. And there was never a question
1: But there is a question now. Some parents are saying no to vaccinating their children, and some adults are shaking their heads at getting flu shots for
3: themselves. And as a science communicator, Neil Tyson is sympathetic. Because he sees the phenomenon as not simply a question of whether to vaccinate or not to vaccinate, but part of a larger puzzle of evaluating what's called relative
0: risk. Often these people are educated, they're thoughtful, and one thing is sure— They love their children, and you can't get in the way of that, nor should we. Now, they learn that some children have had allergic reactions to vaccines and may have died. That makes headlines. A child dies. And all of our sympathy is with these people. But what we're not trained to do, it seems to me, is to evaluate relative risks, There's a risk factor for everything we do in life, for when you get in your car and drive, for when you turn a corner, for people who smoke, for people who mountain climb, for people. There's a risk to everything we do. I remember a time, this is back in the 70s, where there was major stories about children getting abducted in malls who wandered too far from their stroller. And there's a case of a woman who corrals her children very tightly to her as she walks down the car doors of the mall, yet did not buckle their seat belts driving to the mall. So here are kids playing and running up and down on the back of the seat, and she has no concern over that, but is worried about the highly unlikely case that someone's gonna steal her children. And maybe it's our capacity to evaluate relative risk that needs to be trained in us at some point in the educational system. Because as you know, Early in our schooling, we're not taught probability. We're not taught statistics. We're not really taught how to analyze information. We're just handed information. And it's poured into our head, and then we regurgitate it in exams. So perhaps whenever we reform the educational system, somewhere in there has to be some attention given to how we think about data, how we think about risk, how we think about probability. And you know what I did when I had my kids? I looked at the the government keeps statistics on ways you die. And I looked at what are the top 10 ways children die. One of them is drowning, another is car accidents because they're not wearing their seatbelt or the car seat is not in properly. Another one is just accidents in the home. And I went down that list and I said, I'm gonna go statistically on this and use statistics in my favor and say, I'm gonna go right on down this list and say, Anytime we're near a pool, my eye's on them. I'm not going to turn away and refill my pina colada. I'm going to be watching them the whole time because, yes, I know how to swim, and I'll train them how to swim. So we shaped our life to recognize risk factors that, for which there were already statistics,
1: You know, after the Second World War, Americans had great faith in science. In many ways, science had won the war for them. And today, there seems to be this suspicion of science. We see it in the case of uh, the measles vaccine, but we also see it in other things, climate change, GMOs, uh, all sorts of things, where science is now mistrusted. What's happened? How did that happen?
0: Yeah, I I don't have a deep answer for that. I wish I did. But to the extent that I've thought about that problem, I think science now is— so smoothly blended into our lives that we no longer have the occasion to take pause and reflect on the meaning of science to our health, our wealth, and our security. And whereas in the Second World War science was writ large in headlines. It made the bomb, it won the war, it got us to the moon. Science was there in big headlines. Now it's just kind of folded in. We are surrounded by science. We are living in a world of science. And it is so transparent to us that I think we feel like we have the luxury to say I don't need science. I don't trust science. So we can ask the question, although it rarely gets asked, how many people would not be alive today were it not for the fact that science had been introduced into the environment in such a way that Forces that would have otherwise killed you have been removed be they disease be they fire codes be they Any kind of other understandings of how to maintain your health and so maybe science needs more marketing <laughs> I, I, I don't maybe maybe every new science advance we need a commercial campaign to say check it out This just saved this many lives you'd be miserable without this And then people say, hey, I like science, and I like engineering, and I like technology. Give me more. I think that's what we need.
1: Neil Tyson, thanks so very much for being with us. (laughs) I'm there for you. Call me anytime. I will do it. All right. You'll regret
2: that.
3: (laughs) Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist and the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. As Neil Tyson said, most of us are not trained in evaluating risk, but some people are.
4: There is a field called risk perception that provides a lot of insight into why people fear the things they do, and all of us are subject to these biases and heuristics that trick us into thinking that we're making a
1: rational choice when, in fact, we really aren't. Adam Corbitz is a lawyer specializing in space law and risk assessment, and one of the common things we all do to protect ourselves is to not do anything.
4: One example is something called omission bias. This is a a bias in which people assume innately that somehow not doing something is safer than doing something. We'd rather s- commit, so to speak, a sin of omission than a sin of commission. That we just assume that if, if things just stay the same, if we don't do something that we're not doing, that that's safer than acting affirmatively.
1: Maybe this is just the product of... 200,000 years of human evolution. I mean, if, if you're still walking the planet, maybe uh, evolution has said, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it because you're still here.
4: Well, there is good evidence to think that that may be the case, that one of the, the organs in the brain that has a lot to do with fear is the amygdala. And many scientists have pointed out that our amygdala evolved a long time ago long before the modern world that we live in of automobiles and vaccines and radios, and that we're simply
1: not equipped to effectively evaluate a lot of risks. So when it comes to the, if you will, anti-vaxxers, the people who do not want to vaccinate their children, they say, look, the, the kid's been healthy since he was born, right? No reason to introduce a new uncertainty, a potentially dangerous uncertainty into his life. Is that all there is to it? I mean, is it just simply that so far so good, so let's just keep going down the same path?
4: That's exactly often the reasoning. Uh, This is a big issue in my hometown of Madison, Wisconsin, where many of the schools, it's a very highly educated community, and many of the schools where some of the most highly educated people live have the highest rates of unvaccinated children. And Many of these parents have been interviewed in the newspaper about this, and they they are intelligent, well-educated people who have simply very warped ways of looking at this issue. They say, well, I'm not going to vaccinate my child because I read that there's you know some slight, small risk to that vaccination. And I think that if I just feed my child organic food and make sure they wash their hands and live a, live a healthy lifestyle— That will protect them. And, you know, if they get measles or they they get the mumps or they get whooping cough, it's not that big of a deal. They'll pull through just fine. Of course, we know that that's
1: not true. So that sounds like an inability to understand the quantifiable characteristics of risk. We'll get them the organic food because, after all, that's better for them. But on the other hand, (laughs) buckling their seatbelt or getting them a vaccine, which actually has far more sinister implications, they, they can't evaluate that objectively. I, I think
4: that that's correct. There's oftentimes these biases and heuristics all get wrapped up in a in a ball, and they many of them can play a role at once. Uh, for example, in the the example you just gave, I hear probability neglect. It's a, it's a phenomenon where people exaggerate the probability of very dramatic or scary events and downplay the probability of much more mundane but much more likely events. And in their minds, the the possibility, the tiny, tiny possibility of their child having an adverse reaction to a vaccine, which does happen. It isn't that there is no risk. There is a risk, a very, very small risk to most vaccines. But in their mind, that is so much more scary than the much more likely but mundane scenario that their unvaccinated child will get whooping cough. I got whooping cough a couple of years ago in Madison during an outbreak that was traced back to to parents who did not vaccinate their kids. Even though I had had a booster, thank goodness I'd had the booster because it hit me far less seriously than it would have if I hadn't had the booster,
1: but it was plum miserable. So is this an attraction to the exotic? The, the mundane risks we'll ignore, even though those are actually the majority.
4: Well, another common bias is the human belief in the benevolence of nature that anything man made is inherently more risky than something made by nature what can be so bad about whooping cough or measles it's it's natural well we know that it can kill children
1: i think nature's out to get you personally <laughs> uh, there's a lot of a lot of reason to think that that's the case well finally then adam As a scientist, you look at this, you you look at the objective evidence, which is, you know, the statistical probability that you're going to suffer harm if you take this action or its alternative action, and you say, this is a no-brainer. But these people have brains. So it's obviously not a no-brainer. They have brains, and and from the science perspective, they seem to be making the wrong decision. Is there any hope for changing this behavior, or is it really hardwired into us? There is a lot of discussion among physicians now
4: about the best way to communicate with vaccine-resistant parents, and it, it seems like the emerging consensus is that patient consistency, patiently and consistently describing the benefits of vaccination, and explaining the very small risk attached to that is what plays out the best over time. But it's a lot of work, and it often doesn't work.
1: Adam Corbitz, thanks so very much for coming and talking with us today.
3: Thank you. Adam Corbett is an attorney who specializes in space law. Well, he said that there's a field of risk perception that studies how we evaluate risk and why we make the decisions we do. But in order to evaluate things, we have to have reliable facts. Coming up, why some of the statistics about the risk of dying from measles, even those from the Centers for Disease Control, or the CDC, may be misleading.
5: That difference between what an agency like the CDC or maybe newspapers and and other media outlets are using and the reality makes people wonder who's telling the truth here. And that undermines the whole effort to try and encourage people to get their kids vaccinated. It's our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check, the
1: me in measles from Big Picture Science. Okay, so we're learning that we're not naturally adept at evaluating risk. Sure, we can learn how to make our way, but doing so can be
3: hard when the threats are ambiguous. Take, for example, the results of a new epidemiological study from Cornell University. Its scientists have produced the first map of New York City subway microbes.
0: This is 59th Street.
3: Transfer is available to the 6FNR. The researchers collected samples from the seats holes, doors, handrails, turnstiles, benches, and trash cans of the subway system. And as you might imagine, or even if you might not want to, these samples turned up a lot of microbes, more than 637 known bacterial, fungal, and animal species.
1: Okay, but before you swear off riding the subway, here's the thing. The majority of those bugs were harmless, the kind of non-pathogenic critters that take their own rides on you or in you all the time. The bottom line is this. These Big Apple bugs are not out to get you. Microbe-wise, you might conclude that
3: riding the New York subway involves little risk to your health. Except that half of the collected samples were organisms that scientists couldn't identify. They might be harmless, they might not, and a couple that they frighteningly could. DNA fragments associated with anthrax and bubonic plague sounds risky.
2: Stand clear of the closing doors, please.
3: But wait, because the perception of risk
1: changes again when you drill down further into the research. Finding fragments of DNA didn't mean that there were necessarily live bacteria there. And at any rate, researchers
3: said that the amount of plague or anthrax wasn't substantial enough to be a threat. So now weigh the risk. If you walk to work, it takes you 25 minutes and you avoid microbes. But you might slip on ice along the way, get hit by a taxi while crossing the street, or simply arrive late and get fired by the boss.
1: So you take the subway. You'll be on time, but you'll be exposed to a lot of bugs. Yet the chance of your hand brushing up against a live, plague microbe, well, that's so remote. But the
3: threat is not Zero. But then,
1: when is it? After all, no one visiting Disneyland in December 2014 thought they'd leave with anything. But photos of their kids talking to an oversized mouse, they were certainly not thinking they'd be bringing home the measles virus.
3: Well, weighing all these risks, it's enough to immobilize you. So it's helpful to get the relative risks straight, and that means relying on accurate numbers. Risk analyst Andrew Maynard from the University of Michigan says that in the debate over vaccines, some of the numbers are spot on, but some are misleading. For example, it's accurate to say that there are significant risks that a child with the measles could contract encephalitis or have permanent hearing loss.
1: And there is a chance that the child will die. But Professor Maynard says the statistics often quoted in the press that the risk of death from measles is one in a thousand is not exactly right. He recalculated it because the correct figures are important when what's at stake is not only health, but also public trust in science.
5: So that is a big number, and it's a scary number. Uh, The only trouble is it, it doesn't ring quite true. So I grew up in the UK when we didn't have vaccines for measles, and I don't remember being that scared. I don't remember my parents being that scared. I don't remember people dying. So when I saw this, it didn't resonate with me. So I went back to have a look at some of the the source data for this. And if you have a look at the publications, that one in a thousand number isn't quite supported by the research. What people have found is, in the States and elsewhere, roughly one in a thousand cases that are reported that are so severe that people actually go to hospital you end up with somebody dying. But there are many, many, many more cases of measles that really don't get reported. So the actual chances of dying are less than that one in a thousand.
1: Well, isn't that a serious issue then? I mean, it, this is a statistical bias, if you will. But if it's really one in 10,000 or one in 50,000, then
5: the arguments, uh, you know, to get the vaccine seem to be weakened. I, I'm not sure the arguments are weakened. So, Even at a risk of 1 in 10,000, and that's what the data seems to suggest. That's still pretty significant. I'm not sure you'd really want to risk your kid's life with those odds. What is important, though, is that that difference between what an agency like the CDC or maybe newspapers and other media outlets are using and the reality makes people wonder who's telling the truth here. And that undermines the whole effort to try and encourage people to get their kids vaccinated.
1: So this might be a reason for people not to trust science. I mean, and and that could be serious given all the other kinds of issues we face these days in which, you
5: know, science weighs in and, and people then sometimes choose to ignore it. It certainly doesn't help. So if you've got people who are already suspicious and even people that are maybe on the cusp of trusting what somebody says, if a piece of evidence comes along that suggests that maybe they shouldn't trust them so much, it's going to make them harder to make that leap.
1: What about the other side, Andrew? I mean, there's no question that getting a vaccine, indeed getting any shot, does have some risk. I mean... Some people inevitably will be adversely affected for whatever reason. Any idea what that number is? Is is that like one in a 1,000, one in 10,000 or?
5: It is much, much lower. And of course, this is the tragedy. If you look at the worst case, the case of a child dying because they had a vaccine, it's something less than one in a million. And in fact, it's so small that with the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, we don't even have good data on this. We know that this is an effective vaccine and as safe as you can get in terms of dying. So you you need to compare that risk of something less than one in a million, of something really bad happening to your child if you get vaccinated, to the one in a 10,000 risk of them actually dying if they do get measles because you didn't vaccinate them. That's a big difference.
1: Yeah, that's a factor of 100 difference. So what you're saying is that it's 100 times more dangerous for me to have my kid not get vaccinated than to get vaccinated.
5: In very simple terms. Of course, you've got to throw into the mix that there are other things that happen when you get vaccinated. You can get a fever, you can feel under the weather, but those are usually temporary things. You get over them in a matter of days. And to most people, it doesn't have any long-term effect. So, Andrew, for anyone with a science background,
1: then, their view of those who would spurn vaccines is simply that they're, well, they're acting illogically. But of course, that argument might itself be somewhat illogical. What is it that convinces such people that there's less risk in not getting their child vaccinated? What's what's going on in their heads? They're they're making some sort of value judgment here.
5: They, they are, and, and the reality is, and we know this from decades of research. Anybody that thinks that they're logical is under an illusion, even scientists. As humans, we're hardwired to make shortcuts in the way we think, the way we evaluate things. It's just how we are. We have our built-in biases. And of course, in science, we try and overcome those biases, but we're all susceptible to them. So people out there, and I'm not even sure I'd make the distinction between scientists and non-scientists, the people that are concerned about their kids, they're concerned about what might happen if they um, have their kids vaccinated. Their thinking is being dominated by some of these inbuilt biases, these inbuilt fears. And the only way we can really get over those, apart from sort of talking with them, working with them, educating them, is to build up trust, because the best way to get over a bias is for somebody who you really trust to tell you something that counters that. You speak of these biases, and and
1: one that I've certainly heard is called cognitive bias. Maybe you could tell us what that is and how
5: how it works in this case. Right. So cognitive bias really comes down to sort of how you think things work, your understanding of the world around you and how that affects the decisions you make. So, of course, if you develop an impression of the importance of things that can go wrong, like you get the impression that's most serious, the most worrisome, the most horrific thing that can go wrong is your child is vaccinated and they get autism. And your world view is that that is a really big factor. That is going to completely bias your decisions in terms of when you come to make the decision, do you vaccinate or don't vaccinate? And what we also know is as soon as people have come to these value systems and these biases have got hold of them, it's incredibly hard to shake them out of that. So you, you apply that to other areas. Just think about political affiliations and the number of people that follow a certain political party because that's what their parents did, that's what they did as kids. We know how difficult it is to shake people out of those preconceived views and get them to change their views. It's the same with vaccines.
1: You're suggesting that this is, you know, hardwired behavior that 100,000 years ago on the savannas might have actually been good for us.
5: That's exactly it. And it doesn't quite translate into today's really complex society. And of course, it's very easy to spot those dissonances and say how stupid people are that they don't see one risk and they overestimate another risk. And yet we're all guilty of doing that, which is where I think we need a little bit of sort of self-reflection and humility before we start vilifying these people that make illogical choices.
1: Isn't it uh, at least partly due to the fact that they're weighing an unseen, unknown, but potentially very serious danger, you know, like autism, against the measles danger that they don't even see anymore because
5: <laughs> nobody's seen measles. That's certainly part of it. It is much harder to make sense of an unseen risk or something that you're not familiar with, something that you haven't experienced before. And you weigh that against autism, which quite frankly is terrifying the idea that you can have this lively healthy intelligent kid and then something happens and everything that sort of defines what they are seems to just disappear Um, i think there are very few parents that don't feel that wrenching at their guts the fear of that possibility that that might happen so it's maybe not surprising that that really dominates thinking it sounds like uh, vaccines
1: may be in some sense their own worst enemies they've been so successful that now uh, people uh, kind of ignore their
5: benefits. So that is very true. I find this very interesting that I grew up surrounded by people that had measles. I had measles. I understand what it was like, um, how it affected me. These days we have a generation that have no concept. But because they have no concept of it, and again it comes back to the fact that they, they can't see it, they can't visualize it, they have to sort of create these sort of internal ideas of what it might be like. It's really easy for people to become polarized, either polarized in saying internally, because they have no model, this isn't a big deal, or even polarized the other way, where they internally, they come up with a, a concept of measles, which is the most deadly disease ever. They don't have any benchmark with which to moderate that.
1: So, Andrew, what does this say about how we evaluate risk uh, in general, not just in the case of getting you know, shots for our
5: kids? We're actually very bad at evaluating risk, and I put myself in that category as much as anybody else. Um, You're told there's a one in a million chance of something bad happening. I haven't got the foggiest what to make of that. And you see this sort of playing out in all sorts of areas. So you look at food, for instance, and you look at the decisions people make about foods that they consider to be healthy and safe or unhealthy and unsafe. And a lot of those decisions don't seem to make any sense when it comes to the science. Let's take something controversial. The difference between deciding to go for organic food versus processed and prepackaged food. Now in most cases, the organic food, you may think it's healthy, but it's still being grown using pesticides, often pesticides that haven't been tested as thoroughly than pesticides in other areas. So the risks there may be greater than you think. On the other hand, if you look at taking that ready meal out of the freezer, The instinctive approach may be to say that must be bad because it's been processed, there have been chemicals put in it, goodness knows what's been done to it. And yet because the way we assess risk there, we're pretty sure we know what the risk is. And in most cases with processed foods, they're very, very low. Not always. There are some complexities there. But the point is the way we think about food bears very little resemblance to the actual risks and benefits in many cases. Some of the the most dangerous things we come into contact with those in the natural world. And some of the safest things we come into contact with are those that we make because we actually have rules and regulations about how safe or how unsafe they can be.
1: Well, finally, Andrew, you know, (laughs) listening to this, I kind of get a little discouraged as if, you know, we're not critters that evolved to deal with threats that can only be established by, you know, massive trials or stuff like that, that, uh, you know, we're going to make decisions based on our innate reflexes, the immediate data, and stuff like that. And it's going to be a tough slog to get that behavior to change.
5: It is, but there's also a positive side to this. So we can get really caught up in the illogical decisions people seem to make. But it's easy to forget that the vast majority of people actually make smart or reasonable decisions, even when it comes to vaccines. There's obviously an issue with measles, because we need an incredibly high rate of vaccination. But even there, most people get their kids vaccinated. And sometimes we're guilty of falling into our own biases as scientists as well, just focusing on the exception rather than the mainstream. The other thing is, though, despite all this sort of disparaging news that we hear about what people don't do, the reality is that how we've learned to use science over the last 200 years or so has transformed how we respond to risk in the world. And of course, individuals are still illogical, groups are still illogical. But by using science and by developing scientific principles around decision making, we're doing way better now than we were 10, 20, even 50 years ago.
1: Andrew Maynard, thanks so very much for joining us today.
5: Thank you.
3: Andrew Maynard is a professor of environmental health science and directs the Risk Science Center at the University of Michigan. Well, this show is really about those two things risk and science. So as Andrew said, we're not well-trained in how to evaluate risk. And also, there's a lot more science information than there was 100 years ago or so. And so we have to sift through a lot of it to try to make smart decisions.
1: And a lot of it is written in a way that the average person has a difficult time you know, evaluating, of course. It's really no different than it was 400 years ago. You know, Galileo says, hey, guess what? The Earth goes around the sun. And you're sitting there thinking, look, I've watched the sun go across the sky every day of my life. Uh, am I supposed to buy this? And then, you know, 150 years ago, this guy Charles Darwin, he's saying, you know, you're related to that, I don't know, mollusk over there. <laughs> but but that mollusk doesn't look like you. This is not common sense, and you tend to trust
3: common sense, but
1: that's not what science is about. It's about the facts.
3: It sounds as though we have to teach ourselves to listen to the facts of science and separate out our emotional reactions, even if that means looking at that mollusk square in the mollusk eyes. Do they have eyes?
1: <laughs> You'll have to have some mollusks.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and saying, I accept you as my great ancestor. Thanks to a team that takes the risk of taking a shower every day, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
1: Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
3: Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check, The Me and Measles. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science or more Skeptic Check, you'll find it all at our archive on our website, bigpicturescience.org.
1: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over- over-the-air radio because very few microbes can hitch a ride on a radio wave. Check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show. Oh, and uh, have a comment, a criticism, maybe a suggestion. Send it all to us at BigPictureScience at SETI.org.
3: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.